The Jewish views on mental health. New research suggests the way some Orthodox women are treated living with psychological conditions. TLV in LDN, the festival that brings one of Israel's greatest cities right here to the capital. And looted books. We hear from the extraordinary organization who's returning literature stolen by the Nazis to their rightful heirs. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. A groundbreaking study which was published this week has highlighted the prevalence of secrecy and shame experienced by strictly orthodox women with mental health problems. Participants in the research spoke of individual failure and whole families no longer being regarded as human. The authors of the report, which appeared in the journal Mental Health, Religion and Culture, did acknowledge, though, that attitudes towards mental health in Haredi communities are changing slowly. A man accused of stirring up racial hatred in two speeches he made about Jews is to stand trial for public order offences. Jack Renshaw, who's 22, appeared at Preston Crown Court via video link from prison and entered a not-guilty plea to two charges – he was arrested by officers from the Northwest Counterterrorism Unit over his alleged derogatory comments. The trial is set for January next year. A rocket which was fired from Gaza this week exploded in southern Israel. It landed in an open area near Ashkelon as the code red rocket alert siren sounded. No group claimed responsibility, but Israel holds Hamas responsible for all attacks emanating from Gaza. Reports said there was no damage and nobody was injured. T-shirts emblazoned with swastikas on a rainbow-coloured background have been removed from sale following the intervention of Jewish News. The company producing them, KA Design, has apologised for any offence caused. The swastika is still associated today with the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. The company said it was an attempt to rebrand it back to its original roots as a 5,000-year-old good luck symbol used in Buddhism, Hinduism and Jainism. And finally, it's a case of move over made in Chelsea. Here come the Jews of Canvey Island. It's a TV documentary which follows the relocation of families of Hasidic Jews from Hackney in North London to the greener pastures of Canvey Island in Essex in search of more affordable housing. Viewers will learn whether the islanders tuck into kosher food as the film crew shows the process of integration or, it seems, a lack of it. The news this week. Now, here's Andrew with the sport. Thanks, Viv. Israeli triple jumper Hannah Nazieva Minenko recorded her longest jump of the year, but it still wasn't enough to see her claim a medal at the World Athletics Championships in London. She told Jewish News, I'm not happy. It's been very hard here for me because of the injuries I've had this year, which didn't allow me to perform 100%. Israel's top judo fighters are set to miss out on taking part at next year's World Championships in Azerbaijan after it was announced the tournament will clash with Yom Kippur. Israel Judo Association Chairman Moshe Ponte is set to discuss the scheduling with International Judo Federation President Marius Vitsa. He said, This is a serious threat to Israeli judo. This problem requires diplomatic intervention. At the end of the day, we represent the country. And finally, former Manchester United midfielder Roy Keane is reportedly being lined up to be the next Israel manager. Israeli news outlet One claim the Israeli FA chairman Ofeini will meet up with the Irishman with the view of him taking charge of the side for the Euro 2000 qualifying campaign. 
Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. And Richard, on the front page this week is actually the same story that we are covering as our main story in the show this week. And it is about the results of research that has found that in particular women in the more orthodox community are having further issues to add to already mental health problems. Yep, our headline is a grab quote, we're no longer seen as human, shocking study revealing the plight of Haredi women with mental illness. Now, I always knew that you could be marked down in the Haredi community for not being religious enough, but it seems to me now that if you're a woman, you can also be marked down if you're not well enough. This How is... did you know that you're not Haredi? Well, I'm only going by the research that's been meticulously compiled by the uh, Mental Health, Religion and Culture magazine, which is a periodical that's published from time to time, a magazine of, of great repute, which has issued this groundbreaking survey this week, and it claims that Haredi women are suffering great challenges and often not coming out when it comes to being honest with their own mental health condition for the key reason that they don't want to be perceived as damaged goods when it comes to their romantic potential to find a shidduch, a match, and to um, move forward in their family life. So there's a lot of good that's being done in the Haredi community. I know that they've hired a lot of counsellors and a lot of good work is being done. It's a hell of a lot better than it was five, ten years years ago but clearly this report highlights quite a lot of deficiencies. See the problem is though Fran that we shouldn't be too surprised to learn that a community that typically isolates itself for good and bad reasons some might say that they would not be as forward-thinking as the wider Jewish world and even the wider secular world as well because we've obviously had access to newfound information regarding mental health in recent years, whether that be through internet, TV, radio, whatever it is, we've had access to that and they wouldn't. So it can't come as a massive shock that they're still playing by more traditional attitudes and old found attitudes. The important point to make is that it's a tight knit community, but it's also very insular. And when an issue comes along, especially one of this kind, they try to deal with it amongst themselves, within themselves. And I think therein the problem lies, because as you said, there is access to lots of wonderful organisations that can help people with mental health issues, and they're not necessarily able to access those simply because they are within the Haredi community. So the survey obviously is quite revealing, and I think the next step now is to decide how to try and help them absolutely the outside going in no absolutely and that i think should be the running theme throughout this edition of the jewish views is to know that this is not about lambasting the Haredi community it's actually to know what we as a sort of wider community can potentially do to help and of course we'll be speaking to louise palmer from jamie the mental health charity the jewish mental health charity a little later on in the program and i'm sure that she will come up with some ideas for that Now, if we look at one of the other stories that is making the paper this week, this was in the news just now with Viv. Rainbow Swastikas, it's a company in a bid to try and reclaim the meaning behind a swastika. Why would anyone even want to do that, Richard? Well, things do come back into fashion, you know, Phil, from time to time. Flares come back into fashion. I don't think the swastika, though, the most vile, disgusting 
pernicious evil symbol in the history of of humankind is ever going to make a comeback however some fashionistas decided creatively to in their words reclaim it and put it on a uh, sweatshirt I almost said a swastika shirt but I suppose it is that and sell it they wanted to do it along with a, a rainbow background including words like peace and zen and love the Jewish news brought it to their attention that perhaps it was the wrong direction for their garments and they've since decided it's no longer going to be for sale and they've apologized to anyone who took offense extraordinary that obviously this is an old buddhist sign we know it's 5000 years old but i don't think anyone's going to reclaim that in a hurry well i was going to say i think that one of the main differences between a swastika and i believe that it's a manji or something like that is the other name for it which is the the buddhist symbol that we talk about the stark difference for starters is that the two symbols are actually a mirror image of each other. So literally, the whichever direction the hideous spikes in a swastika go is actually reversed with also dots in the middle in the manji. So actually, this is out and out a swastika on these T-shirts. So even if this company was to try and reclaim it, they are still ultimately putting swastikas on T-shirts. So I think that where the, the problem lies, Fran, is that you can't really go around trying to reclaim a symbol that is so poisoned. And again, important to state the difference here between the manji and the swastika. We're talking about a swastika, and you can't reclaim that as a symbol of peace and love. It's just not. Look, you could put that swastika back to front, upside down, in red, in blue, in green, in fluorescent colours, stripes, spots, whatever you like to do with it. It is still a swastika. And clearly, whoever has put this design together is coming from a place of not knowing anything at all or not perhaps taking into account the feelings of people who were affected by the Nazis, by the Holocaust putting it on a rainbow background come on how many homosexuals were persecuted by the nazis as well this is just so offensive to so many groups and i'm pleased that they have actually come out with an apology but what's interesting rich is that i don't believe having read the article having gone into some of this in some depth i don't believe it was done with malice i just think it was a bit ill-informed the fashion industry has a bit of a, a track record for putting controversial images onto garments, Che Guevara, Jesus Christ, all sorts of things. They've tried to, in their words, again, reclaim, repackage, change its meaning in some way. But yeah, we're not going to see the swastika ever coming back into fashion for, for the very good reason that it signifies the mass destruction and murder of, of Europe's Jews and millions and millions of other innocent people. So yeah, shame on them. And they've seen sense, although they've obviously been pushed into making this decision because had they not been brought to their attention then these things would still be on sale. Okay now someone else who might have made an ill-informed decision is a chap who is protesting outside Twitter HQ. What's occurring? There's a Jewish comedian called Shahak Shapira who came to our attention a few months ago when he was protesting Holocaust tourism. I think we talked about it on the show a while back. These are people that go around to Auschwitz and the Berlin Memorial. and they, yeah, take, they take selfies and things yeah, like that. Yeah. They, they behave in an inappropriate way in, in a place that's basically a, a, a memorial, a cemetery to those who, who suffered. So he superimposed those images on the images of these places back in the 1940s. So you'd have a picture of a, a tourist 
smiling inanely and in the background you'd see you know piles of corpses etc really powerful provocative stuff now he complained to twitter 300 times about anti-semitic tweets got very few responses i think he said nine so far this year so he's taken it on himself to go outside twitter's hq in germany with a stencil and some paint and he spray painted these anti-semitic tweets outside Twitter. An extraordinary thing to do, made a a big noise and obviously sends a very, very loud message about what he feels is Twitter's responsibility and the implications for what should be free speech. Now, you see, time is a little bit against us, but we have to make a couple of points from this. First and foremost, we obviously can't condone spray painting anything because technically it is seen as vandalism. However, he doesn't necessarily raise an invalid point in the sense that he is trying to highlight the way that social media is used for all the wrong reasons. But speaking, if I was to put my techie head on here, which some may or may not know that I am a bit of a geek outside of the radio world, that it is not always possible to try and remove all of the material that is put online because the mere nature of it is that it is so vast, so widely available to everyone, that it is not possible to track everything. So, A lot of questions to be asked about this, potentially a subject that we have to do another time. Let's try and shoehorn one more in. First and foremost, it was H. Foreman and Son being given protected status. Now it's Wilson Cemetery. Yes, actually. Wilson Jewish Cemetery has been granted protected status to mark 70 years since it was founded. And I believe it's actually the first of the United Synagogue Cemeteries to receive this recognition. There's lots of notable Jews who were buried there, including Julius Vogel, who was the first Jewish Prime Minister of New Zealand, Lionel de Rothschild, the first Jewish Member of Parliament, and also we have Jack Cohen, founder of Tesco. So there's lots of notables in there, and it's also being given this protected status, which is good, because a lot of these cemeteries are falling into disrepair and getting this kind of recognition can only protect them for for years to come here's hoping well there you go judaism's answer to highgate cemetery wilston cemetery very good thank you both very much indeed that's unfortunately where we have to leave it for a look at the paper this week but don't forget you can pick up your copy of the jewish news every thursday across london or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk As you've been hearing, a groundbreaking study published this week has demonstrated some of the barriers faced by Haredi women with mental health problems. The research was published in the academic journal Mental Health, Religion and Culture, and it was conducted by Dr. Charlotte Whiteley and Dr. Kate Gleason, both from the University of Surrey, alongside Professor Adrian Coyle of Kingston University, London. Well, I'm delighted to say that Dr. Charlotte Whiteley joins us on the line now and can give us more detail. Dr. Whiteley, can you start by just telling us why now? What was the reason behind this research being carried out at this moment in time? The first thing we did was look at the literature landscape and it it looked like there was very little research in this area. And I was working with a colleague who was very interested in looking at the problems that arise when mental health coexists with a religious identity, when you live in a religious community and you have a mental health problem. So he already had an interest. And when we looked at the literature, there wasn't much. So we decided this would be a particularly interesting area to look into. So with his background in mental health and religion, he he had years of experience 
And I'm Jewish, so I had some background, personal background and insight into Judaism. So together we, we thought now would be a good time to look into it. And because there was so little research and the research that we were looking at highlighted that there were themes of stigma um, within the, the Orthodox community, but there was just nothing on the Haredi community. And what so did that, your research actually find? Obviously, we've yeah. got to be careful. There's no one from the Haredim to answer for themselves and to defend yeah. themselves. What was it going on that the research found and that potentially caused you some sense of concern? In the research that we carried out, themes emerged around secrecy and shame in relation to mental health difficulties. And in particular, what was really interesting was the ways in which these women found it almost impossible to follow the social structures of the community. So for example, one one social rule is that it's very important to get married and have children at quite an early age. And they found that if there was mental health difficulties within their family, so if they had a mental health difficulty, it would affect not only their prospects of marriage, but the whole family's prospect of marriage. So all of their siblings, which meant it was very necessary for them to be very quiet about their mental health difficulties, which was a barrier to seeking help and support. How did yeah. you carry out this research? Give us a little understanding of sort of what's the the depth that you and your co-authors went into to try and get the answers you were looking for. So we used qualitative method, which is essentially we're not looking to generalise the findings. What we wanted to find out about is the stories of people's experiences. So we approached mental health charities in the area, so pockets where Haredi societies exist in London. And we looked for men and women that were willing to speak to us. Which I'd imagine must have been very difficult, actually. Very difficult. And and we found that only women came forward to speak to us. And the women that did come forward were women that had changed their relationship with with Judaism in some way, or they'd left the community. And and that had been because of their mental health difficulty. So they found it they found that they were unable to exist in the way they had done in the community so they had to either live on the outskirts of the community or entirely leave the community altogether and it was interesting that men didn't come forward as well that was something we had to reflect upon in the process thank you so much honestly it's been absolutely fascinating what you've had to say and and who knows that obviously what's going to happen now that we have obtained this this newfound information but i tell you someone who might be able to give us a better understanding is louise palmer who's the deputy director of services at jamie and i caught up with her a little earlier on in the week and i started by asking her whether or not she was surprised by the findings no, not surprised. I think what we find is that, you know, when we look back into how mental health recovery and the mental health movement has progressed over the years in mainstream society, we've gone from stigma and discrimination being very rife to being a lack of understanding and awareness. And of course, it's understandable that a hard to reach community or any faith-based community is going to be moving along that journey a lot slower. There isn't the access to 
and exposure to mainstream initiatives that raise awareness and a different approach is needed in order to, to work with communities and I don't particularly like the term hard to reach I think we should be thinking it more in terms of hard to hear it's really important that we're able to listen to the community's needs and respond accordingly. Though to be fair, hard to reach could be an accurate assessment because I think an awful lot of what the wider society now understands in terms of mental health awareness has been achieved by media such as television, through radio, like ourselves, obviously through podcasts and also through the internet, all of which in a more orthodox society does not play a massive part of everyday life. And therefore, if your only source to the so-called outside world is a newspaper or two that are specifically tailored to that community, it's kind of understandable that they would still be thinking along the lines of very old school behaviour. Absolutely. And and that's where we, we need to think around the strengths model, which we use in mental health recovery all the time with individuals. You know, we think about strengths, not deficits. And within communities such as the Orthodox community, you know, there's such a lot of social connections. There are structures in place that support the community within it. There's also a sense of belonging that you get from a being in community. And we know that spirituality can play a large role in recovery as well. So there's a lot of strengths that come along with a community such as this. And I think it's really important that we understand how to equip the community, how the community can be supported to manage the mental health of the people within it. And of course, it's going to be in different ways to media initiatives and, you know, being able to to pick up articles and read read them from the general public. Such as, I mean, has Jamie sort of already in the initial stages, I'm guessing you guys are already formulating plans as to how you can work with the more orthodox communities who don't have access to the regular channels that we referred to earlier on. And so therefore, what are you planning on doing about trying to help? Absolutely. Well, it's going to take a different approach. We need to reframe how we think about about working with people in communities that, again, are hard to reach, hard to hear, whichever whichever term you want to use. We are making connections with people who are within the community, leaders, particularly you know rabbis and organisations that are already doing amazing work within the community to support the people within it. And listening, finding out what it is they feel are the needs of the community, and then working out how we can work in partnership in order to, to equip the community to, to manage mental health, to increase awareness. To We know that reducing stigma and discrimination is a huge part of mental illness because that can be as disabling as the illness itself. So I think if we can start tackling, aware, raising awareness and reducing stigma, I think that's, that's, that's the first step. And it's not about us going in and saying, this is how we've done it already, this is how it's done out in mainstream society. That that's not, wouldn't be fair, it wouldn't be right. It would also be, it's, it's not about changing the community. It's about listening to what they need and how we can address that. It's interesting that the word stigma has arisen a couple of times, not just from you, but also we heard just now from uh, Dr. Charlotte Whiteley, who's the co-author of these findings. The word stigma would sort of suggest that people have a very narrow-minded attitude towards it and probably don't want to do anything. But actually, how much to blame, and this is going to be the subject of our schmooze discussion a little later on in the programme, how much to blame is the pressure we put on ourselves as a community to save face, as it were, to pretend that everything is okay. And that goes right across the spectrum from the less religious to the most religious. I think we have that problem in in all of society. I think there is, it's self-stigmatisation is one issue. Part of that comes from outside pressures, but there there is, stigma is there. It's about lack of awareness. It's about fear. It's about lack of acceptance, maybe for self and also on part of community. So I think it's, 
you know, what the research is saying is this is nothing that we haven't already seen and we don't already encounter in mainstream society. But with with small close knit communities and faith based communities, these these things can be concentrated and amplified somewhat. And because they're not able to respond and, and react in the way that we are to mainstream initiatives, there needs to be another way. And the first thing we need to do is listen and find out, you know, from the people, there are many leaders in the community, in the Orthodox community that, that want and understand the need to address mental health issues. And we need to be listening and working with, with those people to find out how we can make steps forward. Well, speaking of listening, let's hope that whoever might be listening to this, and it doesn't actually matter really whether they're from the more Orthodox community or whether from the less religious, whoever it might be, thinks that they could benefit from some sort of help that Jamie can provide. What do they need to do? Get in contact with us. I think, you know, it's about about us sitting down and having a conversation. And that conversation can be the start of working at what's do next. It would be very arrogant of us to say this is what needs to happen. This is what needs to be done. We first of all need to understand the needs of the community. And we're only going to do that by working in partnership with the community and the people that are that are like you say out there thinking they we want to make some changes we want to be able to do more and how can we do it one of the things we did earlier on in the year was the mental health awareness shabbat and there were from right across the spectrum many orthodox communities involved in that raising awareness so things are happening and and there are people that want to want to do more Louise Palmer, Deputy Head of Services at Jamie, the Jewish mental health charity. And if you've been affected by this discussion and would like any help or advice, then please do go to our website where we'll put all the details. You can also contact Jamie directly on 020-8458-2223. That's 020-8458-2223. I'd like to highlight at this stage that if anyone from the Haredi community would like to appear on future editions of The Jewish Views to talk about this subject, then they would be most welcome to do so, though our attempts to get them involved in this episode proved unfruitful. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and I will be joined by Rabbi Morris Michaels and journalist Jenny Fraser. We'll base our discussion on what you've just been hearing about, the attitudes towards mental health in the community and the pressures of maintaining a front. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Uwe Hartmann from the Lost Art Foundation about the amazing work that they are doing to return books stolen by the Nazis to their rightful heirs. But first, if you've been to Israel, I am sure you've sampled the amazing delights that Tel Aviv has to offer. I know it's the first place I go to whenever I go to the Holy Land, that's for sure. But a new festival called TLV in LDN is set to bring some of the wonders of Tel Aviv right here to our very own capital city. Well, to the Roundhouse in Camden, to be precise. Arts editor Kate Fulton has been finding out more about it for us by speaking to Mark Worth, the director of the festival. And Kate started by asking Mark to tell us exactly what we can expect from said event. It's really about bringing the best of Israeli fashion, food, music, art, dance, theatre to the capital to show the, the greater London public the richness and diversity of the country. How did it all come about? So around three years ago now, Boris Johnson, when he was mayor, approached Daniel Taub, who was 
the ambassador, Israeli ambassador at the time. And really in response to the tricycle theatre debacle back in 2013, where the lobby groups persuaded the theatre not to allow the Jewish film festival to take place there. And of course, there was a whole uproar about that. Boris decided he wanted to try and make amends for it and, and, and suggested the idea of a cultural festival to, to the embassy. Obviously, they jumped at the opportunity, and, and that's really how the whole idea, how, how it all started. And how did you get involved? Well, I was approached, actually. I, I, at the time, was in the embassy. My background's in the fashion industry, and I was trying to secure some budget to bring over some Israeli fashion designers to take part in London Fashion Week. That never actually happened, but the head of the culture desk grabbed me and said, um, we've got a, a project that we're working on, top secret project, sounded like it was a Mossad that we were involved, and, and said, you know, maybe it's something you'd be prepared to help us with or, um, you know, just offer us some advice. And I said, I'd be delighted to do so. And, of course, within about, gosh, three minutes, well, not quite three <laughs> minutes, turned into, would you help us to, would you run it for us? In a moment of madness, I said, yes. So this is going to be the first of its kind, or has Correct. it done before? No, no, it's never been done before. There have been things like Tel Aviv Beach in Paris, and I think they've done something in, in various, in St. Petersburg, the same sort of thing, but never a cultural festival. And yeah, it's a, it's a first. And I think the original idea was n- not necessarily to do something on the sort of scale that that, that we're doing it, but I sort of... Know it's grown. From, it's grown, and, and, and I think if you're going to do something, you're going to do it properly. So when we're actually looking at how long is it for a start? It's a four-day festival. Most of it held at the Roundhouse in, in Camden. A couple of satellite venues as well. And it runs from the Thursday night, the VIP gala opening, through to the Monday evening. And when you're actually in the festival, what do you do? I mean, the Roundhouse, right. is is that is that a theatre or is it a space? It, it's a space, but it's used for, for concerts, for gigs, for dinners, for, for, for lots of different things. Uh, it's, a, it's a multi-purpose space and it'll hold up to 2,000 people for a gig and 500 for a seated dinner. It's a very versatile space. And the, the programme at the moment is, is, is say, the VIP opening, dinner, uh, VIP opening party on the Thursday night. Then all day Friday is a school's curriculum enrichment day. So by that, what we're doing is we're bringing in kids from both Jewish schools and non-Jewish schools across, across London. It's roughly 50-50, and we've got about 400 kids coming in. Year 10, 11, and 12. And we've got TED Talks, we've got speakers, we've got workshops, we've got performances they can take part in. We've also got some people coming in from some kids or young people coming in from Norwood and we hope from Great Ormond Street as well. The Friday night, and this is Tel Aviv, so the Shabbat thing doesn't necessarily come into this, although I have to say that all the food is kosher throughout the festival. Friday night, there is a gig by that well-known band, Infected Mushroom, who I'm sure okay. you know. Right. <laughs> the Infected Mushroom. I'm showing my age very now, but po- it sounds Very cool. popular. In fact, the tickets only went on sale 10 days ago and we were almost sold out, which is brilliant. Wow. Saturday and Sunday all day is a food and wine festival, again, with workshops and performances by singers, DJs, artists, whatever. And on the Saturday night, Israel's top house DJ by the name of Guy Gerber, performing again. We expect that to be a sellout. Sunday night is a, it's, it's turned into what's called a woman power or women power concert, mainly because all four of the artists and performers are women. And that's a combination of, wait for it, Afro soul, Yemenite rap. That's um, amazing. Do you need to get tickets for all of these things? So all of those are ticketed, yeah. And then on the Monday night, there's also another ticketed event, which is for a slightly older and perhaps more discerning audience, which is at Cadogan Hall. 
in Knightsbridge, and it's called Piano Mania. And it's basically three grand pianos on stage with three very well-known Israeli pianists performing together. In Israel, it's seven pianos, seven grand pianos, but we couldn't find a venue big enough for seven pianos. And they'll be performing together. There is a a, a young upcoming British opera singer by the name of, I think, Gemma Atherton, who's also going to be performing, and also a Palestinian Israeli called Mira Awad. Who, she's quite well known, she's isn't she? She's quite well yes. known, and she's going to be performing as well. So we've got Sorry. a good a bit of, sort yeah. of cross-cultural yeah, yes, there. Yes, absolutely. And across all of this, lots and lots of Israeli food. So our executive chef, celebrity chef, is a guy called Shal Benaderet. He owns a restaurant called The Blue Rooster in Tel Aviv. He does lots of food festivals all over the world, and he's going to be doing the food literally for every event. Gosh, and you said there was fashion as well. Does that mean ah, yeah, buying things? Fashion. Yeah. No, not buying things. So we're actually doing a fashion show. So on the opening evening at the VIP, where we're expecting about 450 to 500 people at the Roundhouse, it's going to be, it's going to be civic dignitaries. It'll be the minister, ministers from Israel, the mayor of Tel Aviv, the ambassador, you know, who you'd imagine. So there is a, a, a jazz trio performing by the name of Avishai Cohen, quite popular. And during the Avishai Cohen set, there'll be a fashion show by a brand called Masquite, which is a revival of a 1960s, very, very famous brand that was founded by Moshe Dayan's wife, Ruth Dayan. And it was revived about seven years ago, very successful as well. So they're coming over to do a fashion show. And then after that is lots of food and a performance by Mayumina. So Mayumina, basically Israel's answer to Stomp. Yeah. Right, so, so that's like a show. Yeah, the show with the drumming and the dance and whatever. It's a fantastic show. They've been, they have a um, permanent presence in Jaffa and have done for about 17 years. And it's a fantastic performance. And that we're going to run also during the school's day in the afternoon. And if you were to step back mm-hmm. from everything that's going on, what do you really hope to get out of the whole event? It's really to educate. It's to show the the British public, the uninformed British public, and to a great extent, the non-Jewish public, that actually it's not just bad stuff that you see on the news that comes out of Israel, that really there's a lot of good stuff as well. And the BDS guys and whatever who... Are you expecting them to be outside? There'll be some. We're expecting it and we're prepared for it. How do you deal with them if they're going to be stopping people getting in? They they won't stop. I mean, you know, to be honest with you, BDS, their their bark is louder than their bite. And, you know, most events where they've said there's going to be a presence, there's a handful. And we've carefully chosen the Roundhouse as our venue because it's pretty difficult to protest outside there. They can't get on the pavement in front. They're kept away from that. If they're going to pr- protest and shout and whatever, it'll be across the street. It's a very narrow pavement, so they'll be moved on. So so actually, the secu- both CST and the, the Metropolitan Police and everybody involved with security are, are very comfortable that it actually probably is one of the most secure venues. And believe me, we, we had a look at them. Yeah, cause so people don't a, need a, to even worry about no, that. No, no, people I think don't need to worry about it. But, you know, we'll have the normal security checks in place bag searches, scanners and whatever, if we have to. I know a lot of people will go to Israel, uh, non-Jewish people particularly, go to Israel with a, you know one conception of what the country's all about, that it's tanks and bombs and bullets and whatever. And, and, and really, when they get there themselves, they, they, they have a completely different view when they come back. And, and you know I guess that's what we're trying to do, sample a little bit of, of, of Israel, a little bit of Tel Aviv in London, then get on a plane and go and see it for yourself. So that would be you know, the goal. Absolutely. You would actually hope that people... Hope people will there be travel agents or people telling people how to, if they want to visit? We, we, we haven't envisaged that as well. But, but you know, it's, to, it's just really 
Tel Aviv is an amazing city, I'm sure you know, and and it's full of diverse culture, very open and very tolerant. And you know, has a huge. Oh, I forgot one of the most important things on the Friday night is we have a big LGBT party. It's a Tel Aviv beach party. It's not at the Roundhouse. We're expecting two and a half thousand people to that. So when we talk about tolerance, as we know, Tel Aviv is, I think, the second biggest gay community outside of outside of um, San Francisco. And what's the website if people want to find out a bit more about it? So the website is tlvinldn.org. Mark Worth, director of TLV in LDN, or Tel Aviv in London Festival, which will be on at the Roundhouse in Camden from the 8th to the 11th of September, and obviously other venues that he mentioned as well. If you're wondering why we're telling you about this at the beginning of August, it's actually because you've only got a limited number of spaces at the Roundhouse, as Mark mentioned, and it's bound to get pretty booked up. So more information can be found at our website, jewishviews.co.uk, including a link to the festival website where you'll be able to book tickets. In just a moment, we'll be this week's schmooze. Now, don't forget to tune in to the live stream every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. The link can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And don't forget that if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, at the time of the Second World War, thousands of belongings were stolen from the Jews by the Nazis. We've all heard about the art that was looted, jewellery that was simply taken. But what about books? The initial Czech project dedicated to finding stolen books and their rightful heirs is a relatively new part of Germany's government-sponsored search for stolen art, coordinated by the Lost Art Foundation. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Uwe Hartmann, head of province research at the organisation, to find out more. Diana started by asking Uwe to tell us exactly what the initial Czech project actually does do. It does a special project. Of course, we have seen in the last years that the little institutions in little cities, museums also as libraries, have no scientific stuff. Indifferent to the big museums in the big cities like Berlin, Munich, Dresden, we have over 3,000 little museums and over 6,000 little libraries in our cities. They have uh, collections, they have books from former times, historical collections, but they have no scientific stuff to make historical research. They have other tasks to give books and other media to the uh, people in their cities, to the children, but they have also the political task in Germany to research to Nazi looted books in their collections. And they uh, were not able to do it. And our center tried to make a project that we can help directors, the heads of the little libraries, when we sent experienced researchers, they had many knowledge to find significant traces of the books and help them to check their collections of books. I assume, therefore, that as you're the head of the provenance research at the Lost Art Foundation, you must be something of a detective 
in finding the original owners of the stolen books and paintings? Yes, of course. In, in many books, you have only traces like initials or ex libris. And of course, in, in ex libris, you can find the name Georg Rosenthal or Hermann Tietz or other names. But it's difficult to find their heirs, grandchildren in the United States or Israel. They have now other names and not the name of their former family, Rosenthal or Tietz. Now they have other names and it's difficult to find. But if we were successful, we have many, many situations of happiness and then the fair and just solutions are real. The Nazis were renowned for keeping meticulous records, were they not? Did that prove a useful source for your researchers? Of course, in, in many cases, we have in our archives the lists, the list of deportation. Of course, we can see the names of the families when they had to leave their flats, their houses, their home. And in these lists are registered what they had to leave in, in, in the flats. Of course, the things in the flats, painting on the wall, but also they registered the books. When there were old books, uh, the, the edition of Goethe or Schiller, the officials uh, write down in the reports, but also maybe a library of technical books because the man, the father, was an engineer. And sometimes these lists are detailed, then other times these lists are not so detailed. Which piece of stolen property would you say you're most proud of returning to its rightful owner? Ah, we had some situations uh, and moments when we were in a very emotional I remember a restitution at the Zentral- and Landesbibliothek uh, in Berlin. They found a little book with a writing of the teacher of a young man. And this young man, now of course an older man in California, was the only survivor of his family. He was one of the children. They could come to Britain. Of course, the Britain government, you know, make a decision to uh, let young Jews from Germany under the age of 12 years come from Germany to Britain. His older brother and his parents were murdered in the Holocaust, and he had only the photo of his family and some clothes when he left Berlin in Germany in 1938. And now this book was third authentic item in connection to the history of uh, his family. And of course, it's where it was very, very emotional view back uh, of his life. I can imagine a, a really treasured possession. And finally, I understand the foundation is widening its field of recovery. You're, you're actually hoping to reunite musical instruments and even cars with their proper heirs. Is that right? Yes, we have a, a wide range understanding of cultural goods. And of course, in the, in the Nazi era, a car was a car. <laughs> but if we take a look in the auction catalogs, when the 
all um, all property in the houses were sold at the auctions. Of course, we see in the in the first lot numbers uh, the paintings, and in the last lot numbers we see the the clothing and the Rolls Royce or Mercedes Benz in the garage. And if a car like this is now in a technical museum in Germany or in Austria or in other countries. Of course, it's an object in a museum and it's a, a cultural good or item. Uwe Hertmann, head of province research at the Lost Art Foundation in Germany, speaking to Diana Thoman there about returning books stolen by the Nazis to their rightful heirs. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining me today is Rabbi Morris Michaels of Bournemouth Reform Synagogue and journalist Jenny Fraser. The subject today is based on what we heard earlier in the show, a groundbreaking study published this week has demonstrated some of the barriers faced by Haredi women with mental health problems. The question is, what sort of pressure are we as a whole community applying on ourselves to make anyone think they have to hide something like psychological illness? Rabbi Michaels, let's start with you. Are we too tough on ourselves as a community to make anyone think they have to hide when something's not right. We have, over the years, taken many issues which previously were regarded as a stigma, and that's disappeared. And I'm quite sure that psychological illness will also disappear as a stigma. But it does take time for people to get used to these things. And... Where we have a situation in a society which is generally closed, as the Haredi community is, it's always going to take that much longer. Many years ago, when Jamie first started becoming noticeable in the community, I went and did a couple of sessions for them at different times, and I found a number of the clients that they were treating were Haredi men. So it, it does it applies just as much to the men as it does to the women. I think it's just that within Haredi society, there is a a need somehow to protect the women from the outside world, and so it takes longer for the women to be able to give be given that sort of treatment. But isn't there more to it than that? Because Haredi women are believed, I think, to to stay in the home and run the home. Almost, I don't mean this rudely, but almost behave like second-class citizens. But, of course, that's just not true in Israel. In Israel, something like 70% of Haredi women are out in the workforce. Are they? Yes. I'm not a member of the, the Haredi community, but I do know, first of all, the 70% of women in the workforce doesn't just apply to Israel. It's the case in the UK as well, that very high numbers of Haredi women are out working because their husbands are studying. I think why we don't know so much about perhaps mental health problems with Haredi men is because this study that we're talking about this evening has been done specifically relating to women. There are many mental health issues afflicting 
the strictly orthodox community. And the problem has been that because of the way marriages are arranged in that community and shidduchim and, and making sure that people's families are of the, the right quality when matches are made, that's why I think many mental health issues have been covered up in the past because it will affect people's marital prospects in the future. It will affect marital prospects of the children and that's been the huge problem. Now, it is the case that they are dealing with it. They're dealing with it in their own way. Where they need help from the outside community, they ask for it. Where they can deal with it on their own account, they, they do deal with it. The difficulty for them is how it will affect the next generation. It's really interesting the way that you say that this is a women's only study, because if I've interpreted what Dr. Charlotte Whiteley, who's one of the co-authors of this study, told me earlier on in the programme, she said that they did approach both men and women to speak to them in their efforts to conduct research on this particular issue. But they found that only women were prepared to speak to them. So I found that quite intriguing because potentially there is further problems amongst Haredi men as well that we just don't know because the research that's being carried out, the researchers weren't able to make contact with the Haredi men. So it is interesting to think that potentially this problem could be deeper and more hidden than perhaps we first realise and think. You see, I always remember a few years back there was a programme on television, on BBC television, about Haredi families. And there was a woman who opened up and said how women were treated in a very patronising way. And she got very cross. And her husband sort of treated her in a way like a servant. But don't you think that's just one example? I think it's very dangerous to sit here in judgement when none of us have direct involvement in Haredi life and say what does and doesn't happen within that society. I don't know. I only know what they choose to allow to be heard. And I think it, it, it would be very foolish to try to sit here in judgment. But in old Jewish families, not Haredi families, but in two or three or four generations ago, the women were considered to be, and it wasn't meant in a patronising way, were considered to be the people who stayed at home and looked after the house and kept the house and did the cooking. But Clive, but Clive that was the situation... Generations ago, that was the situation with everybody. That's what I was going to say. Not just choose. Just, just remember, Clive, that pre-1945 in the UK, that was the situation generally. It was only because of the war when the men were away fighting that women started getting involved in factory work and many other types of occupations. Prior to that, it didn't happen. So you have to remember that Judaism has always been a patriarchal society. Yes, indeed. And therefore, the way in which that changes is by openness and access to wider society. Now, the Haredi community, by its very nature, tends to keep itself to itself, 
doesn't go out into the open in the same way that the that Jewish society generally has, the mainstream Jewish society. And therefore, that patriarchal approach is still more prevalent than it is amongst mainstream Jews. And also, I feel that just to be fair to Clive, that potentially the point that was being raised was more of a comparison to years gone by, where, of course, mainstream society and perhaps less orthodox Jews have shall we say, moved on and progressed and also gone with the flow. Whereas with the more religious members of Judaism, they potentially do still believe in the more traditional way of living, such as the women potentially keep the home and the men go out to earn the keep. So I'm not saying that it's right or wrong, but that I believe if that's correct me if I'm wrong, Clive, that's more what you were getting at. It was more that it was more that they are sticking to traditional ways of thinking, whereas everyone else may have moved on a bit. And of course, we must remember that we're not just talking about a Jewish community that does that. Many of the communities that have come into the UK, whether Hindu, Sikh, Muslim, also follow a more patriarchal line and are more in line with the way in which Haredi Judaism works. And also, potentially as well, we need to be fair, that not just Haredi Judaism, there are other sects of the more orthodox Jewish world that do follow suit, such as Lubavitch and what have you. So it is not fair to just tarnish completely Haredim. No, but it's, it's, it's a way of life. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's a way of life. It's been a way of life for hundreds of years, and it's not a way that can easily change. And therefore, the argument is that somehow somebody's got to get to the women and say to them, you can be a little more active. The question is, once we know that there are issues, what's going to be done about it? That well, surely must be what we because, are. Because it's not going to be possible to do very much about it. That's a fact, isn't it? Well, no, I don't think, I think, don't think you're right, Clive, because the fact that it has now become public knowledge will in of itself create the need for solution. And not to mention that also now that the wider community knows something about it, exactly. they will start to reach out and try and help as well. By the same token, there are parts of the strictly orthodox world which recognise that they have to build some bridges into the outside world. It doesn't apply on a wholesale basis. But again, I think we can't make judgments on a wholesale basis. I would reiterate that there are almost certainly more women than men from that community who are in the workforce because the men are studying. And it may very well be that the expectations put upon the men in terms of the, the kind of study that they, they have to complete in order to be held in respect in those communities, some people may not be able to do the work and they just might not be able to deal with the expectations. And those might be the kind of mental health problems that are afflicting the men that we simply have no idea about. Oh, well, that's very interesting. I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave it. But my thanks to our guests, Rabbi Morris Michaels of Bournemouth Reform Synagogue and journalist Jenny Fraser. 
Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time who else could it come from but Rabbi Morris Michaels of Bournemouth Reform Synagogue. Many years ago, I was employed by a telecommunications company as head of business planning, and I was responsible for developing a series of objectives and the strategies necessary to fulfil them. We used an acronym. Objectives had to be SMART, that is specific, measurable, achievable, realistic and time-bound. In the Sidra Ekev, God set some objectives and strategies for the children of Israel. And now, Israel, what does the Eternal your God require of you but to fear the Eternal your God, to walk in all God's ways and to love and serve the Eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul? They certainly are not smart objectives. Indeed, they meet none of the smart definitions. Rather, they are ideals to aspire to, but not, one thinks, objectives that God actually expects humanity to fully meet. It seems that there are four objectives – to fear God, to walk in God's ways, to love God, and to serve God. First, let me deal with this idea of fearing God. We invariably translate Yir'ah as fear, but a far better meaning in this context is to be in awe of. This, according to the rabbis of old, is the one thing over which God has given us control. The Talmud tells us, everything is in God's hands except the awe of God. Otherwise, how can God require it from us? It's the one thing that God gives us that we're expected to return. So how are we to achieve this objective? Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, the founder of 19th century German Neo-Orthodoxy, points out that the cantillation notes, which are often a good guide for interpretation, suggest that in fact there are only two objectives, to be in awe of God and to serve God. Walking in God's ways and loving God are the strategies to revering God. Similarly, the strategy by which we are to serve God is by keeping God's commandments and statutes. This latter is reasonably specific, can be measured and certainly is achieved some of the time. But the former strategies seem less in line with our SMART acronym, walking in God's ways, loving God. The text tries to help us by listing some of God's attributes. God favours no person, nor takes bribes. God executes the judgment of the orphan and the widow, and loves the stranger, giving him food and garments. So what is required of us is to follow in God's ways. But much more difficult is this other strategy, to love God. The text doesn't give us any help. Some commentators suggest that the very act of walking in God's ways will lead us to love God. Others connect loving God to serving God, that by carrying out the mitzvot, we will come to love God. It may seem strange to us that feelings can be commanded. Surely love can't be demanded. I think that what is being requested are the actions which stem from love, the wholehearted response to walking in God's ways and in serving God. I mentioned that the T in smart meant time-bound. In the context of our Torah reading, that means that the objectives that Moses told the people of Israel were God's requirements of them are just as valid today. 
we too have to be in awe of God, to aspire to God's attributes, to observe the mitzvot, and to love God. Now, it always means something to me to hear the wise words of Rabbi Morris Michaels. As I've probably mentioned somewhere before on this program, he was in fact the rabbi who conducted my bar mitzvah all of those years ago. So thank you very much indeed to Rabbi Morris Michaels with our thoughts for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to our guests, Louise Palmer and Dr. Charlotte Whiteley, talking about the alleged stigma associated with mental health in orthodoxy. Mark Worth telling us about the TLV in LDN Festival, or Tel Aviv in London Festival. Uwe Hartmann from the Lost Art Foundation in Germany and the amazing way that they are returning books to their rightful heirs. Thanks very much to our other contributors and of course to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producer, Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen again to any of our previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.